Welcome to the History of Networking on the Network Collective, where we drag all the skeletons out of the wiring closet. Today, we are talking to Bob Hinden about the history of IPv6. So grab a pile of cookies, settle in, and listen as we meld, fi- meld with the finest minds in networking. Hey, Bob. So I guess you're in sand someplace. All those San- places out there are sand. <laughs> San Carlos. San Carlos. <laughs> yeah, the San Francisco Bay Area, Silicon Valley, one of those things. One of those things. So I understand they all got sand because there's a line of missions that were built by the Jesuit priest or something like that that went up the coast. Yeah, so I'm not sure they're, they were Jesuits, but uh, yes, missionaries. There were a lot yeah, of missionaries. And so they, they, they named them like San Jose, San Francisco, San, you know, after all the saints, right. they went up the coast. So that's how they, in case the listeners are curious, that's how they all got there. <laughs> but we do have places that have different names as well, as in I live in Palo Alto. So well, I, think, it's, I think stands for big tree or something like that. <laughs> I'm so. on Oak Island. We lost all of our big trees in the last two weeks. <laughs> something about a hurricane. <laughs> Actually, it's not true. The big tree in the front yard is still fine. We'll so go. today we are talking about V6. So you can just start. I mean, what were you thinking? <laughs> well, so before I jump right into it, let me just tell you a little bit of my background, okay. um, how I sort of got into networking. I mean, you you know, when I went to college, I, this stuff didn't exist or nobody knew about it. And so I ended up working, starting in the late 70s, I worked at a company called Bolt, Brannick & Newman, who happened to be doing the ARPANET. And uh, and that was, I mean, if you're interested in networking, that was a wonderful place to be because there was just lots of smart, cool people and they were doing this thing, you know, really neat thing. And I got to work on the early ARPANET a little bit. I mean... Yeah, I actually ran some code, you know, ran in the imp for a little bit, but then I got involved in some other stuff there. Um, I did a, a NCP Telnet implementation, and then I did a TCP implementation um, for a device called Attack, and and then that got me into leading the group that uh, we called them Gateways then. Um, so, you know, and that, that's what really got me involved in the, the internet technology. You know, I got to, I like to say, I got to work with the people who did invent the internet. You know, I won't make, I don't make that claim, but, you know, I got to work, you know, work with, you know, Vint and Bob Kahn, John Postel, Bob Braden, um, Dave Clark. I mean, a whole bunch of, it was, I mean, that was, that was really cool. I was definitely you know, in the right place at the right time. And I, I had enough um, forethought to realize this was going to be interesting, even though BBN at the time didn't take the internet very seriously, but I, I did. So uh, it worked out well for me. So, so, you know, we were, you know, I was going to ITF meetings. I've, I've been going to the ITF since the first meeting and went to meetings that sort of predated the ITF. We started to realize in the early 90s that, you know, we were starting to run out of V4 addresses. And so that started a, a bunch of activities. 
Um, it was a committee called the Road Group um, that got started that sort of looked at this and it came up with a couple different recommendations. Um, you know, one was that we should do classless interdomain routing to get have better efficiency of how we did routing because then the address structure addresses were very structured and you either had you could have a lot of very small networks or very few large networks and people were realizing this didn't scale very well. I mean this all got sort of invented where computers were big and expensive and I think the original design that just no one could imagine that there could be as many computers as there are today. I mean they were it just yeah, it's just changed so much. And so the, the other outcome output of that group was that, you know, we needed a, a new version of IP that had bigger addresses. And that, that's what sort of started the work that ended up leading to what became IPv6, but there were several different choices. But the other thing that um, I think most people have forgotten is sort of, you know, what we call the internet, the TCP IP internet, it was far from clear that this was going to be successful. There were lots of, can you still hear me okay? Okay. Yes, yep. Um, good, I got a funny note on my screen. Um, there were lots of, you know, alternatives. There was the OSI, CLMP stuff, ATM was happening. AT&T was doing some stuff. You know, it's like all the money and, and some, a lot of governments and some industry, they were making different bets. And so this was a bunch of, you know, techies um, doing something, you know, with support of certain parts of the U.S. government. I mean, this was all developed from ARPA. I was actually in D.C. Um, early this week, and um, I on my way to the airport, I, I had them stop at um, 1400 Wilson Boulevard in Arlington, Virginia, where there's now a plaque where it's commemorating that this is where ARPA was and, you know, and that they created the ARPANET. So that, so that was cool. You know, yeah, that is a lot, awesome. of, a lot of history now. I can send you a picture if you wish. Um, <laughs> I'll have to go visit it, actually. That sounds yes, kind of cool. Yes. Um, I mean, it, it's not a very big plaque, but if you like this stuff, it's cool. Um, and so, you know, the and the ITEF that was doing this stuff, you know, this was not considered a standards organization. You know, it wasn't OSI. It didn't, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, a lot of people didn't take it seriously. And And one of the issues we were having was that there wasn't, not, you know, people could see that V4 was going to have its limits. And I, I think actually we come much further with it than anyone would have imagined. Um, but not having a plan for what comes next was actually, you know, one of the things people were criticizing. So, you know, one of the side reasons for developing a new version was that we had a we had a story for what was going to come next and now we're going to continue. And and, you know, now everyone just takes all this for granted. But, you know, the, the world was very different then. And, um, you know, no one took this seriously. In some sense, I think it was partially successful because we didn't have the pressure of everyone thinking it was going to be successful. 
and we got to just do the right thing and people worked closely together. And, and then it wasn't really about the money uh, that happened later. So, so that, that was where the, where we came from, but, but we could see then that the internet was growing exponentially and the factors that were causing it to grow, um, we could start to see, you know, we, we, we knew there were going to be more computers. We had the notion that they were all going to be on the internet. There was going to be lots of new users. I mean, at that point, many countries weren't on the internet. China was not on the internet. You know, there was a, a story that MIT had more IP addresses than China, which for a period of time was actually true. It's no longer true, but you know, so it was, it was a, the internet was very small and not widespread. And then we also had the notion that all devices were going to be on the, you know, network, you know, there were going to, there was what we call, we could sort of see there was going to be this thing that we, I guess we now call IOT. Um, I, I like to call it the internet of insecure things, but um, <laughs> nonetheless, you know, you, you know, and that any, anything that, that had electricity was going to have a computer in it and be on the network. So, so we could see that there was, this was going to get a lot larger, you know, and we could see this in the early nineties. So, so we knew, we knew we had to do something. So, um, so, you know, so we, you know, and the, the address space in V4 was, you know, we were seeing exponential growth then. So the, the ITF folks created a group called Road. Um, as I said, its output was was CIDR, classless interdomain routing, and that there should be a new version of IP. Um, there was a, a whole big internal ITF controversy, around, you know, in this time frame. Um, it's called the Kobe incident. Because the the Internet Architecture Board decided it knew what the answer was, and that answer was going to be the OSI CLMP protocol, and so they just sort of made a proclamation. They didn't, you know, said you're going to use this, and um, that didn't go so well with the ITF community, and there was there was a revolt, and it sort of the the IEB at that point in time was actually the final step in the ITF standards process, and the result of all this was sort of new new process defined in the ITF, and the IEB was got renamed to be the Internet Architecture Board, so it could provide input on architecture, but it was no longer in charge of the standards process. So I think Vince Cerf um, came and so actually. That's when- so that's when the IESG became the primary. Yes. Um, okay. That's interesting because that's what the way things are now is the IESG is basically the final arbiter of right. what the standard or what doesn't or whatever. So it's it's kind of so the IAB actually played a larger role at one point than it does now. In the- uh, yes, exactly right, and. Uh, I mean, the ISD did exist then. I was, I think, the area director for routing, you know, in those days. Um, um, but the, but the ISG would approve things, and then they would send them to the IAB, and then they would, you know, do the final approval. And there was. So, what was the the reason for the proclamation that we were going to do CLNMP? Well, I guess. 
they thought it, you know, would suffice. It was an existing protocol. The fact that the chair of of the IB at the time, Lyman Chapin, was also chair of, I think, the ANSI group that was also doing that work probably had something to do with it. I mean, I, I wasn't on the IB. Um, I guess my personal story was so. So the the meeting the meeting was. Um, so I got it. The IIP had a two-day meeting. It was in Kobe, Japan, and I, and I, I was there for the. I think it was the INET meeting before that. And so, um, the I, IETF chair Phil Gross at the time in, invited me to come to the IB meeting on Saturday, and um, and so this was talked about and. Um, but there weren't any decisions made, and and um, so the so you know I said you know well I could stay you know because I wasn't going back till Sunday night, the next day like most flights from Japan to the West Coast, and um, and so I asked you know should I stay for stay and come to the next day? So oh no we're not doing anything important. So Steve Deering and I went and you know we're tourists and. Went to Kyoto, I think, saw the temples, which was very nice. And then, and then, and it turned out a bunch of people were actually on the the same flight that night. Um, and it turns out the the CLMP proposal actually was written on the same flight. We didn't I didn't know that at the time, but um, so it was they they um but who knows what would have happened had i got invited to that second day but uh, well i just yeah in any case but it was so i was i was there but um so they went ahead and did this and again it just got lots of opposition and i actually think that they made a strategic mistake in this because they the way this was proposed is that the ITF wouldn't really have change control. And so if there were things we wanted to change in CLMP, like um, maybe the checksum, because it had a very a checksum that was difficult to do in software, or maybe the address structure or something like that, you know, we wouldn't be able to do that. We'd have to go ask the, the, the OSI committee. And, and that was also a thing. I, I think at the at least to me, and I, you know, this is just my view. I think had the IAB been more flexible about that and said, "Yeah, we can go and change it," um, we might have had a different outcome. But but they didn't, and so the what the ITF did was it you know formed a next generation committee or area in the ITF, and there were a number of different proposals um, came out of that, and. Um, I won't, I won't spend too much time on this, but I think there were like four main proposals. One was called um, by Robert Ullman, called IPB version 7. It's also called TPIX and turned into CATNIP. Yeah, I mean, these all have these funny acronyms. There was one called TUBA that Ross Callen shared that was basically the um, CLMP proposal. It was TCP over CLMP. Um, there was one I proposed with, uh, so with Dave Crocker called NCAPS and or called IPay. Um, then Steve Deering proposed SIP. Um, Paul Francis proposed PIP, and all of those things ended up getting merged into SIP with two Ps, 
and that's that's the proposal that was eventually selected with some changes to become IPv6. Um, and so, so there was, you know, people had running code. There were different specs. There were lots of presentations, and and you know, so the they went up off and, and made this decision. So it was a, you know, it was a committee decision. I, I think if, um, you know, you know, the big one of the biggest um, um, controversies was how big the addresses should be or whether they should be variable length. You know, it really was came down to two proposals: SIP, which had 64-bit addresses. Um, you know, as part of this process, there was a requirements document written, you know, that said how how big an internet it could be, you know, how many nodes you had to address. Um, so the the 64-bit SIP addresses, you know, more than met the requirements, you know, by three orders of magnitude. Um, but it was also, I always thought SIP was a very nice, you know, it's a simple IP as opposed to what we now use SIP acronym for they're completely different um i always thought it was a very nice design um you know it kept the header size the same as ipv4 by taking fields out like fragmentation so it, you know it made the addresses twice as big or twice twice the number of bits so it gave you a much bigger address space but the packet overhead um was kept the same and then the other choice was the basically the addresses from CLNP, which are 160 bits, um, and they were structured so they could be variable length. Um, you know, they were compat. It was basically the OSI NSAP address plan. Um, it had a nice feature: you were able to to do simple auto configuration with IEEE MAC addresses. Um, and in theory, you could start with short addresses and grow grow to larger later. Um, so the compromise, you know, again, it was a committee. The compromise was to make the double the size of the SIP addresses and keep the basic structure that SIP proposed. And so that's how we got 128-bit addresses. So yes. the CLNP address or the uh, INSAP address space is very hierarchy hierarchical with all of yes. the like OIU and assigning authority and all this other stuff in it. Did that play a role at all in making decisions around this? Or was that kind of like, well, we can just use those bits for whatever we want to? Well, that was, I mean, I think that was one of the, you know, how much control we would have over the, okay. but the other, the other part of this, and this the thing that one of the things that caused me to sort of continue to advocate for fixed size addresses is, so the way that CLMP was actually deployed, it was deployed as fixed length 160 bit addresses. There was no example of it being deployed with actual, you know, small addresses and big addresses. And nobody quite knew how to do that. It's like in theory you could do that and it also you know we were this was slightly before people were building stuff in silicon and the notion of you know right now you know v4 addresses you know 32 bits you can have 32 bit fields and data structure very easy to manage v6 you know has bigger ones but they're still fixed length if, if everywhere you store addresses, you have to keep track of its length, that adds a lot of complexity, potential 
you know, potential bugs if you get it wrong. And so, it, you know, there were there there was a desire to keep it to make it, you know, simple and easy, to, you know, easy to program in computers we had at that time. And, you know, also, you know, one of the things that um, well, Steve and I ended up co-chairing the V6 group. But what, you know, we wanted this to be a multiple uh, sizes that actually fit into, into the modern computers. And, uh, you know, so you usually had 32 or 64 bit words and stuff like that. And 160 bits just didn't, wasn't even anything close to that. You know, it's not a multiple of 16 or 32 or anything like that. It's a very arbitrary size. Yeah. It is. It's very strange, actually, 168 bits. Yeah, I mean, I, and I don't know the history of how they got to that, but um, so so those were. I mean, so those were a bunch of factors that caused the group to to sort of go with large. You know, they, you know, if you if you made the addresses twice as big, then you really, you know, any notion that it wasn't a large enough address space went away. But it, you know, it did make the packet header go from 20 to 40 bytes but you know we got we got an address space which was much much bigger and we only doubled the header size so the overhead wasn't too much um, was there anything else i mean i know fragmentation and stuff like that was playing roles was there anything beyond just the addressing that was driving were there any other things about v4 that people were saying ew yuck that's really yucky i wish we would have done that differently well, I mean, one of the things that SIP did was it took the fragmentation information that was in all of the headers and moved it to a sort of an ex- we call an extension header. And the notion is you you know the notion is if you didn't need to do fragmentation, then you wouldn't have to carry those bits. And that's how we kept the header to be only twice as big. Um, and you know, so it, it was a. I don't think I have. Sure. Right. So, it, I mean, so we, there was a sort of the header was is was simplified. I mean, V six is fields are bigger, the addresses, but the header format is actually simpler. So, so it's a little bit easier to parse. It, you know, V four actually has the ability to have options in the header that didn't actually get used very much. Routers tended to put packets like that in a slow path. Um, today they'd probably just be dropped. So it, it didn't, even then it wasn't really thought to be viable. So the notion of a smaller fixed length header made resonated with people. So, so there was this trade-off between having these optional header fields that sent things to the slow path versus having a smaller header. So you made the header bigger, but you actually made it easier to hardware switch, it sounds like. Right. I mean, that was the thinking anyway. And, you know, so we did these things. Um, well, get, we did these things in these six called the extension headers. And, you know, I, you know, my model, ha- I think, continues to be that most packets aren't going to have extension headers. Um, you know, I mean, you might have IPsec or something, which sort of is an extension header. But most packets are just going to be the IP header and the TCP header, and 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 I think that's that's what's turned into mostly most current practice. The, you know, the, there is people do play with them and experiment with them and try different things. But you know, we ended up having hop by hop headers 
which every hop, every hop in the, you know, between the source and the destination needs to look at. And those have not proved out to be very useful because they tend to get slowed down or dropped by routers and middle boxes. Um, and the rest are destination headers, which only the destination looks at. And that, that makes a lot of sense because the middle doesn't have to look at it. And those, so, I think, have more potential use. I think there was an announcement made recently by the IASG or the IAB saying that no more hop-by-hop -hop headers would be allowed. Like, well, right. We So when we, we recently advanced um, IPv6 to what's called IETF standard, sort of, as opposed to proposed or draft standard, so it's, I call it full standard. So it's the last step in the IETF standards process. And what we did was we, I mean, there still are, we haven't deprecated hop by hop headers, but it used to be that you were required to process them, even though people didn't. And so we changed the spec to, I think, match the practice, which is, you know, you may do them, you know, but you're not required to, you can just ignore them um, and, you know, just go over them. Or I guess if you have to drop the packets, but um, because they just haven't they haven't been very useful in practice, so it's they're not, um, and and so that, that was one of the changes you know or clarifications that we did when we published the latest uh, RFC that defines IPv6. So when you first doubled the size to 128 bits, how did what did you envision the uh, subnet to be for to to be handed out to individual companies? <laughs> Well, so, yeah, that, that was a whole process on its own. And there were some early proposals that were later abandoned. And what we ended up with, and this is still, there's a lot of controversy around this, is we ended up with sort of the host identifier being the lower half of the address, 64 bits, inter called interface IDs. And then the upper part is a prefix, and the and the the amount the amount that an organization we well, what we tried to do was that an organization that needs multiple subnets would get 16 bits for subnets. Uh, in practice, that's I don't, I don't think that's quite happening. I think there some people are getting. Um, most home users are, I think, currently are just getting one 64-bit prefix, but other organizations can get, you know, can get more, get a shorter prefix so they can have more subnets. And, I, you know, I think there's a variance in practice, but, you know, we did a lot of analysis to say, to show that, you know, if you gave every insight um, a 48-bit prefix, there were still more more addresses than you could possibly use in, in, in any reasonable scenarios. So there's always a risk here that, you know, if you're not careful in your allocations, you can use up any, any resource, you know, right. independent of its size. You know, I think like a lot of things in the world today, people look at natural resources and, you know, think they're they can never be used up but they can't so if you know if you give out all the address space and it doesn't get used 
you, we, we, even V6, we could weigh this. But so, I, so far, I think the practice has been pretty good. So how 64, why 64, I guess, is a question. I know for a time, I remember there being this issue around 48 bits and people being afraid that we were going to run out of 48-bit addresses on for layer two for MAC addresses, maybe access control stuff. Right. Yeah, the earlier, bef before, there was an earlier version that had that be, the interface IDs would be 48 bits based, based on, you know, I call an Ethernet MAC address, um, UI 48. Um, and then I think it was Firewire came along and it had 64-bit um, UIs. And uh, that was, that. that's what, you know, and that was looking like it was going to take off and that caused us to make it 64 bits. You know, I think if I had to do it over again, I probably would have kept it at 48. But nonetheless, um, <laughs> seen, seen, you know, we would do a lot of things. We might do some things differently. I, that's, I think, I look back on it. So I think that was, um, you know, I think I would probably do that differently. But it's, you know, it's, it is what we did. And it seems to be largely common practice today. Um, I mean, it is this. This is one of the areas of continuous um, debate, I guess, or a tussle of you know how many addresses a site should get versus how much the ISPs get to keep. And you know, we we at least the folks who sort of tried to design IPv6, we wanted to make sure that the what we did the policy was that end sites would get as many addresses as they needed. We didn't want to end up with what happened with V4, where the address space got very tight and it caused people to have to do network address translation and other kinds of things. So we wanted there just to be, an, you should get more addresses than you could possibly use. This was the value of having this big, especially going to 128 bits. Um, if it was 64 bits, then we might have policies that are closer to V4. But we said, given that, you know, we should just, an inside should get as many address, you know, get a, you know, get a, you know, give them, have 16 bits for subnets and, you know, 64 bits for hosts. You, know, you can't have that many, no organization can ever have that many computers. So it just it would just be a sparse space, and you never run out. You never have to go back and get more, and it would just make everything a lot simpler. I mean that that's what we were trying to accomplish, and I think we've largely done that. But you know, some people think it's there's too much, and um, so I think we'll we will get to continue to talk about this for a long time. So but it um, does seem to be the current practice. Yeah. So site local. Where did that come from? And I know it's kind of been deprecated, but what happened there in that process? Like, were people thinking site local was necessary, like RFC 1918, or what was going yeah, on? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, we have sort of three kinds of addresses in V6. We have global addresses, which are, you know, unique everywhere. Uh, we have link, you know, addresses that are only unique on a link. Um, and then we had this thing called site local, which was sort of, you know, a set of links 
that they were, the addresses were unique on. And that, that was, I think, modeled after the 1918 addresses, you know, that we do in V4 private addresses. Um, and, you know, there was, um, there was a, I, when was this? Uh, I don't remember, but this turned into a big controversy and a lot of people um, decided that they caused other problems. I'm not completely convinced it was the right thing to deprecate them, but we have, so there, no, no one uses them. We ended up, I uh, actually wrote this RFC, we, we defined a thing called unique local addresses because it's still important to be able to, you know, if you need address space and you're not connected, you don't have a provider address, you know, address because you're not connected, you still want to be able to have addresses that are unique from that. And so this allowed you to have your own, have a prefix that you compute um, by running a random number generator. Um, and you can tell so you get a prefix that is very likely to be unique globally, but so you, you could do like site to site VPNs and stuff or with other organizations and they're not going to conflict. And you don't have to worry about them, you know, leaking and conflicting like you do with, you know, like net 10, which tends to pop up everywhere. Um, and so that, that was, that would, that's what got developed instead, but they're defined to have global scope but they're, they're not guaranteed to be unique everywhere. So you, can, you know, so they don't get routed on the global internet, but they, um, and they solve a bunch of problems with that, you know, you have with private addresses, like when two organizations merge, you know, if they're using ULAs, then they're not gonna have to renumber the one half because that, they are unique, you know, they wouldn't be using the same prefix. So, so they have a bunch of advantages over site local. So I think that was actually an improvement, but um, yeah, so we decided to, it was a, you know, one of those big controversies and we decided to deprecate site local. So where did, uh, where did Nat play a role in V6? Well, so Nat doesn't play a big role in V6, but it certainly had a big role in the internet. And I, I think that, I mean, and I think it's one of the reasons that caused um, the, that made, made it take a long time to get V6 deployed because it took, a, that took a lot of the pressure over address scarcity because that and private addresses, you could do translation at the edge. And so for organizations that the private addressing was met their own needs, was all fine, and and it had some set of caused some set of isolation um, because your address space wasn't uh, visible, um, and so so that you know that meant people could just keep using IPv4 a lot longer, and I think what we've found out that um, you know eventually large organizations you know like telcos and cable providers and stuff realized that even with the private addresses, they were having to run multiple instances of, you know, private addresses because their networks are too big. And this makes the complexity of managing them very, gets very hard. It gets expensive. It's fragile. And so that's what caused them to start wanting to do V6. And that's what, I think that's what drove a lot of the, deployment in the last, you know, five to 10 years 
um, where large access providers like Comcast and Time Warner and, and now mobile providers like AT&T and T-Mobile and so forth, you know, are just, you know, they have very large IPv6 networks and they provide these addresses to the customers. And at the same time, we now have content providers like Google and Facebook and YouTube and Netflix and, you know, all, all that. So, you know, they're, they're currently seeing the last I looked at the stats, I think Google, Google is seeing about 25% of their access traffic be over IPv6. And they don't talk about how much traffic that is, but I suspect, I think I've seen stats that Google and Facebook and the like count for probably 80% of the traffic on the internet. So 25% of that is a really big number. So we've, um, you know, the V6 deployment is, you know, going along quite well. And the graphs still look like um, it's growing exponentially. So, so I just remember there being a big, a lot of discussions around that and not doing that in V6. I mean, right. we, we were trying to, because Net, Net has a bunch of problems with it. Um, and it, you know, it gives you a perception of security, but it's not really security. And a lot of Nats have lots of, you know, ways of getting through them. Um, and it breaks a lot of protocols. For a lot of protocols have been designed to work around that. But you, you know, you can't, you sort of lose the end to end internet. And then what we're seeing now with address scarcity is multiple layers of Nat in some places and that you know each of, each of these yeah. you know we had this internet datagram design where the the network is supposed to be stateless and here we have these boxes with lots of state in them and so if something happens to them or they reboot all those connections fail and you can't you know they get things get tied to all of that state so i mean while it's been you know it got used very widely. We were trying to design V6, so you didn't have, you weren't required to do that. I mean, people, of course, figured out you can do that. And I mean, the one good, I'll talk about the good part of that, is that, so we've also realized that a nice transition strategy, I mean, we started with the notion that, that we were going to, first we're starting with IPv4, and then we're going to go to, we run both protocols, and we call this dual stack. And so, you know, the same device runs, is able to run both protocols in parallel. And uh, and that's that's what mostly is happening today. You know, like my, I don't know whether the Zoom that we're using for this is doing that, but, you know, most, you know, like my home, home I'm, I'm a Comcast customer and I get V4 and I get V6 and all my devices are dual stack. And so when V6 is available, they use it. Um, and it seems to work pretty well. Um, so, but, you know, at some point we'd like to get to V6 only, you know, when everybody has it. Um, and so I think one of the things we've, we realized that if you can do network address translation, it's hard to translate from a, you know, a small, it's hard to go from a small space to a big address space, but you can actually go from V6 to V4 quite easily in this, you know, you can just, instead of just changing the addresses in the, as part of the translation, you change the headers too. 
And so, you know, you can, and then because you have lots of V6 addresses, you can locally represent, you know, make make a V6 host think it's talking to a V6 destination where the translator is actually proxying, I guess, for the V4 destination. So we're, there's starting to be work and uh, initial deployment. We try, we do experiments at ITF where you can have a V6 only host and network, but, the, but at the edge of the network, you translate to V4. And that's really exactly the same service that V4 is today anyway, because you're translating from V4 to V4. V4, right. And but so I think that, yeah. Yeah, so I think that's, I think that's, to me, I think that's going to be the next phase in the transition where, and we're starting to see some organizations realize that, you know, it's complicated to have to run both protocols, you know, inside of, a, say, an enterprise. And so if you can run, move the enterprise to V6 only, but still get access to the V4 internet outside, you know, you can run NAT64 and, and translate to that. And it, it appears to work pretty well. Most um, most things did it. Most most things seem to just work. There are some some things that don't. Um, and it's also interesting, this is, you know, a few years ago, Apple in the in iOS sort of because because they were there are some mobile phone networks that want to work this way. You know, they they made it that, you know, any app you ship on iOS has to be able to work in this mode. And and we don't have that for, you know, regular computers because you don't, ISPs don't enforce things. You don't control what apps or vendors. Yeah, it's a little different, but it's certainly, you know, it, it's it's an example of this being a useful strategy. And because it, you know, the networks, the access networks can only support v, v6 and you can, they can just translate to v4 when needed be but again you know with google, you know you know if you're only using google and facebook and so and watching youtube videos then your most of your traffic will be v6 and it won't all you know so the amount of stuff that gets translated will be smaller so the going going back to addressing a little bit multicast um Multicast is a question that I have, is how did multicast routing come, like, not multicast routing, but the multicast address space in V6 seems kind of complex. Like, there were all these different pieces that were thought about and put in, and we ended up with something that seems kind of simple now, right? I mean, how did that come about? Was there a lot more thought put into multicast and the complexities of it and stuff like that? Because I think... V6 was very early in the multicast world as well. Well, it, it was early, but it was also, I mean, it wasn't the first to do multicast. I mean, we did multicast in V4 first. And, you know, there the choices in address addressing were fairly limited. You know, we did part of the V4 spaces reserved for multicast. And so we reserved a lot in v6 too and you know there was all these extra bits so you could have all kinds of scoping and and then I, so i don't follow it in detail but you know they made it even more um i'm not sure whether to say complex or sophisticated yeah um, right but but that's the idea right it turned out to be that we have all these bits let's go use them let's make something out of these bits 
Right. So you, you can have more kinds of groups and different kinds of use cases and so forth. I, I don't actually know how widespread the use of that is or how successful it is. I, I know there are certain there are certain business cases for multicast in um, certain enterprise environments where it's very nice for moving information, you know, where everyone needs to get the same information at the same time, like financial information. Yeah, know. right. Financial. If, you're, if yeah. you're doing trading, you really want everyone to know what the latest stock price is. And so the, the multicast is quite good for that. You know, it's really been a challenge to have multicast routing work on the global Internet. So it's I, th- I think that's probably the, you know, the, the, the challenges of the multicaster probably more at the, in the routing area of how do you manage multicast groups, you know, who's a member, where they are, all of that, uh, and the protocols around that, then, it, then it's actually the packet format or the address space, how the addresses are structured. Right. Right. Cool. So, Donald. But, 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 but since, you know, I also add that, I mean, so the, you know, Steve Deering and I really drove a lot of this and you know, he was the one who invented multicast so he's he's the one who gets credit for putting get, multicast in v6 we need to get him back on to talk about or get him on to talk about multicast at some point uh yes <laughs> so yeah so donald i know you have a question yeah my question so you, you actually kind of touched on this already so what would you do differently now for 20 years in, 25 years in, what would you go back and change now that you know, know something? Make everybody no more. it faster. Well, <laughs> let's see. I mean, let me back up a little bit. So one of, you know, so it's take, clearly taken a very long time to get to where we are now. And I, you know, and some people think that, you know, if we had done it, this some other way, you know, I, I don't know, pick whatever your favorite one is that it sort of would have gotten deployed really IPv10. quickly. IPv10. <laughs> well, no, or, you know, whatever, whatever the technical changes. My, my take is the reasons that caused it to take a long time to get deployed are had nothing to do with the technical design choices we made. Um, it's that the, the, the internet, the world changed in ways that we didn't anticipate you know, like or just around the time we were doing this, the web happened, you know, around 92, you know, the browser happened. And and that and there's this giant cascade, to, you know, that created the commercial Internet we have today with, you know, you know, websites all over the place and advertisements and and tremendous growth. And, you know, everyone's anyone in the business was focused on growing and providing newer, newer, you know, web content and stuff. And so it, you know, no, it was no longer a set of people who just wanted to build the internet and do the right thing. It all, it, it turned into money-making operation. It turned commercial and, you know, everything had a business case. And so this was never the high biggest thing on the list because it solved, you know, the way I like to talk about this is V6 solves a global problem. It doesn't, it didn't initially solve a local problem. You know, you couldn't, 
you, you, and if you, you know, the first two people to deploy it got to talk to each other, but that's fairly limited. And <laughs> featured things that things that solve local problems where the people who deploy them get a benefit immediately get deployed a lot faster. Um, that, my favorite example of this is, so another thing that I did in the ITF was called VERP, Virtual Router Redundancy Protocol. And this is a protocol that allows two routers to um, back each other up. They basically appear at the host like one router. And so one of them fails, all the traffic goes to the other one seamlessly. And so you get redundancy. And, and that solves a real problem. Routers fail. You want to take them down to do a, you know, a bunch of things. And so th that got like deployed as soon as the specs were done, you know, or before they were done. And, you know, it's had very large, it's had very large deployments, but, you know, you only need two of them to be useful. It solves a problem. And so that solves a, a very nice local problem. It, it doesn't require any global coordination. All of these things, those, those kind of things get deployed quickly, but things that require everyone to do it or large groups of, you know, before it's useful, right. Before it's useful. Those are very hard to get deployed today or quickly anyway. Um, and, you know, it affects lots of things in the security area. Well, it affects, you know, there's been lots of, lots of work that the ITF has done that are very interesting, but it's hard to get them actually deployed in scale to be useful. And so, I mean, that's sort of what happened, I think, with V6 is, you know, it solved the global problem. I mean, so I don't know that there's anything we could have done um, to, around that. Um, you know, it's some people say it wasn't compatible with V4. Well, it's hard to be compatible with something that doesn't have any forward compatibility. I mean, if, if when they invented V4, if they had had some mechanism to support bigger addresses, then then we could utilize that. But the only only vehicle we had was the version number in the header. And so we in that sense, it is compatible with, you know, the Internet protocol family. Uh, that's where the six comes from before and the four. It's the ver it's the version of IP. So that's the transition mechanism that IP came with. And that's what we used. But there so wasn't. I want to know what happened to IPv5. Oh, yes. So IPv5 was assigned to a protocol called, um, I have some notes here. Hold on. Make sure I get this right. Called Streams Protocol, or ST. It was developed, you know, around the same, little later than um, IPv4. It was intended designed for real-time, you know, real or well, everything was an experiment then in real-time communication. They did audio and video with it, but it was, it was not a replacement for V4. In fact, it used V4. So it sort of ran next to it. Um, so it was, it was never, it could never be a replacement for V4. It was just, um, but it, it was, I mean, it was, um, you know, it's, it was part of the research activity that ARPA did. You know, they had audio and video conferencing going that did, you know, different codecs and they did lots of cool stuff. 
you know, they had, um, you know, BBN. I wasn't in the group I was in at BBN, but there was another group doing this, and you know, they were doing audiovisual conferencing, you know, like we're doing right now, um, and they were using ST. And so we should be using. So we should be using IPv5 for this. <laughs> well, that's a, yeah. Well, we've learned a lot of things about you know. I mean, remember, it's not so many years ago that people said, well, you can't do audio and video using IP. That's right. You know, you need something that guarantees bandwidth. And I think that's, yep. I don't hear that very much anymore. But, um, you know, it's, or now we're going to probably say you need 5G, I think. That's a whole different discussion. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, so, so version 5 was, you know, assigned to ST. You know, it was another set of work going on at the same time, but it was never intended to be a replacement for V4. It was just, you know, a supplement to do to do real-time communication. Okay, cool. Well, I think we'll wrap up there. That's really good. I mean, it's really cool that you let us in on all this history. Um, maybe we'll come back and do VRRP and NHRP at some point and talk about all of that as well, because I think there's a lot of stuff going on there between um, Cisco's NHRP and then coming into VORP and stuff like that. So, but uh, we'll leave that for the next time because this was, okay. yeah, this is really cool. So let's see, Bob, do you blog or tweet or I don't know any of that kind of stuff? I, you know, I post on Facebook once in a while. I, okay. I'm doing less Twitter. I've never been a big Twitter user, but I especially, you know, this, it's gotten to be, there's all the political stuff on it these days that, yeah, so in any case, but I, I do some stuff. I, I'm not a regular blogger. Okay. Maybe I should. Well, I mean, it's cool. You know, I was just wondering, we can send people your direction if you were. Donald, I know you don't blog. I give up on it. <laughs> yeah, you can find me at I guess what I'll say about blogging is I have tried it occasionally, but what I, it's, you know, I get the first two or three done and then it's hard to keep going. But that's <laughs> yes, exactly. But I do, I do lots of email. So okay, cool. <laughs> I don't mind people contacting me usually. Yeah. You can find me at me, not you sharp on Twitter. Okay. Oh, cool. Cool. And um, I'm routing geek at Twitter. Uh, Rule 11.tech is my blog. You can always find me on the Network Collective where we're doing lots more history of networking, which is really cool. And um, we'll see you next time on the History of Networking. Thanks.